everyone, and welcome to After Alexander. Episode 25, Long Live the King. As we saw last time, Antiochus now had to deal with the Gauls, who had crossed into Anatolia under the leadership of Leonorius and Lutarius. Anatolia was already fragmenting to the point that Antiochus could only assert his authority by playing different groups off each other, such as the New Princes, Pergamon, and the Old Persian dynasties. This new challenge would have been exactly what the Seleucid Empire wasn't looking for. Now, a, bit, a quick bit of date dropping at this point. To the best of my knowledge, the Siege of Byzantium, which I mentioned last time, and the subsequent crossing are supposed to have happened around 277 BCE. The dates I've seen are a little muddled, and vary a bit from article to article and source to source, but as an approximate date, it'll serve the purposes of this episode. My hope is that, once the post for this episode is up on the website, I'll be able to add a section detailing the different dates I've been able to find so far, as well as my reasoning for why I've chosen this one overall. But back to the narrative. Antiochus had, at one point, considered recruiting the Gauls to his own cause, as we saw last time. However, owing to the fact that the negotiations had fallen through, the Gauls were now under the banner of Nicomedes and the Anti-Seleucid League. Accordingly, the first action of the League was to turn on Zipoites II, the younger brother of King Nicomedes I. It is likely that Zipoites II had, in the words of Bevan, quote, an understanding with the Seleucid court, end quote. Accordingly, the League and their Gallic troops turned on him and plundered the Thinian countryside. An alternative explanation is that there may not have been a Seleucid alliance after all, and that Nicomedes I simply wanted to destroy his younger brother, who was now in charge of a large part of formerly Bithynian territory. Anyway, whatever the cause, the Gauls took everything that wasn't nailed down as plunder, and the reign of Sepoites II is supposed to have ended in 276 BCE. The only one of Nicomedes' three brothers to escape initial massacre had now been crushed under his brother's heel. Nicomedes had reunited his father's kingdom. However, the Gauls soon began to drift beyond his control, as was perhaps to be expected. They abandoned the ruined valleys of Bithynia and began wandering the Anatolian countryside, pillaging along the way. Or, as Bevan writes, quote, they knew neither master nor law outside their own horde, and turned to right or left wherever the sight of smiling lands and villages provoked their appetite. End quote. Perhaps a little melodramatic, but the point is that Anatolia would not have been a fun place to be for the post-277 inhabitants, especially when you consider that the force of the Gauls at this point numbered at least 10,000 warriors and around 20,000 people in total. Although the whole picture for this period apparently doesn't survive, there are some hints at what normal life became like for the people of Anatolia during this troubled period. One legend has it that, at the city of Miletus, the Gauls captured all the women of the city outside its walls during the feast of the Thessamorphia, and took everyone with them who was unable to pay a ransom to be released. 
seven of these women supposedly took their own lives to avoid this shame. The city of Selene reportedly escaped a siege by the Gauls when the river god Marcias rose up and drove them back. And, as our third example, a legend at Thessimonium told that Heracles, Apollo and Hermes had appeared to the city's magistrates in a dream, and told them about a nearby cave which would provide a safe haven for the barbarians. The general picture that therefore seems to emerge is a peninsula which lived in fear of the onslaught of the Gauls, given that these local myths endured. As Bevan notes, quote, However much fiction may go to make up such legends, they show at least how the memory of these days of fear was burnt into the popular imagination. End quote. Bevan also notes that the Gauls added a new dimension to the question of Seleucid control west of the Taurus Mountains. Previously, rulers of the Greeks had continually seemed poised to unite the peninsula under their sway, but accidents had always prevented it from coming to full fruition. Think the death of Alexander the Great and the toppling of dynasties that 40 years of subsequent warfare brought with it. However, he writes that the Gauls had to be removed from the map entirely if a Hellenistic power wanted to subdue the whole peninsula. After all, as has been demonstrated just now by Nicomedes, the Gauls could always act against whatever Hellenistic power was on the ascendant, being a mercenary force rather than loyal to one group. The fact that the Gauls were able to act as mercenaries to any power on the peninsula was, in Bevan's eyes, bound to keep Anatolia unstable and disunited. In their entry on him, the Encyclopedia of Ancient History is of the opinion that Antiochus' arrival in Anatolia in the first place was not prompt enough or early enough to ensure his dynasty could lock down the peninsula. Given that we've already seen an anti-Seleucid league coming together in the region, this seems plausible. However, it does seem to me that, if this is the case, perhaps this delay was inevitable, given the vast distance between Antiochus' residence and his father's western provinces in 281. And so we come to the time period at which Antiochus gets his traditional Greek epithet, Soter, or Saviour, the same one that Ptolemy I had had. If you believe Appian, this epithet was afforded because he succeeded in driving the Gauls out of Galatia. However, as we'll see in a moment, evidence shows this is not the case. However, it does stem from Antiochus winning a personal victory over the Gauls in 275 BCE. Now, Antiochus had apparently not been able to fully focus on Anatolia until this year because he'd been preoccupied pacifying Syria. Accordingly, in 275, he faced the Gauls in open battle. Legend has it that, the night before the battle, Alexander the Great himself appeared to Antiochus in a dream and called out, Health, which was the traditional greeting when parting. This omen, combined with the host of the Gauls which now included 40,000 cavalry and at least 80 scythed chariots, meant that his heart sank and he wasn't in good spirits about the outcome of the battle. However, he was counselled by the tactician Theodotas of Rhodes to place his 16 Indian elephants in the front lines, and this advice was sound indeed. When the elephants moved forward, the horses of the Gauls panicked and retreated, meaning that those scythed chariots we mentioned earlier, and which we, they would have thought would have been so effective, instead cut through their own lines. 
this chaos meant that the Hellenistic forces slaughtered the Gauls, with only a few escaping into the surrounding hills. In the subsequent afterglow of victory, the army raised Antiochus onto their backs and hailed him as Callinicus, which means beautifully triumphant. However, Antiochus is supposed to have wept and declared the army only had shame, given that without the 16 brutes, as he called them, they would have been lost. But whether or not you afford pride to the Greeks, the outcome is the same, a stunning victory against the Gauls. Antiochus had won a great victory over the Gauls with the use of Indian war elephants, the same resource that had served his father so well at the Battle of Ipsus 26 years before. This victory allowed Antiochus to curb Galatian raids on the coast and relieve the pressure on certain districts. For this victory, the people of Ionia, who had now been saved from the harassment of the Gauls, honoured him as a god and awarded him the nickname Soter. In fact, his culted Seleucia Pieria, the same city where his father was buried, would take this one step further and remember him as Apollo Soter. The combination of harassment of Antiochus and resistance from cities in Anatolia meant that the Gauls were gradually forced to limit their wanderings across Anatolia, transitioning from a nomadic life to a settled civilization. The target they chose was Phrygia, which Bevan notes had a history of bowing down to foreign occupiers. However, an alternative explanation for why this region is that they were settled there by their allies, the Anti-Seleucid League, in order to create a buffer state, which I assume refers to a buffer state with the Seleucids. Regardless of which story is correct, the Gauls eventually settled down. In fact, a region of Anatolia came to be named after them, Galatia. If you've ever heard of the Epistle to the Galatians in the New Testament, well, this is where that name came from. The Hellenistic world at large tried to claim glory from defeating the Galatians. In fact, when Ptolemy II attempted to make off with some mutinous Gauls, his court poet would place him equal with Apollo in terms of subsequent glory. However, as at Ipsus in 301, the Seleucids and their elephants had been a deciding factor in dealing with this new threat. So, that's the Galatians out of the way. It should be noted that the Roman historian Livy wrote that the Gauls would continue to harass the coast, and even the Seleucid Empire would have to pay them off. We do not know whether one victory would have finished the war off. However, with the Gauls somewhat dealt with, Antiochus could now once again turn his attention elsewhere. Next time, we're going to swerve back around again to discuss what the Antigonids have been up to since the fall of Demetrius I, as the House of Antigonus once again becomes a useful ally in the struggles consuming this second generation of Hellenistic kings. Until then, thank you all for listening. For any questions or comments, you can get in touch at the show's email address. Until next time, have a great week, everyone.